So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, Man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man, the monthly magazine show for your ears. And here is what we're humbly presenting for your delectation today. This film played in my head for all these years. And, and suddenly I'm not even a part of it anymore. It's kind of a classic Hollywood story where I'm looking through the window at my family having Christmas without me. What's it like when the film you wrote isn't the film you wrote? Screenwriter Jack Barth on what happened in Hollywood Plus. How many other partners are you seeing? How is this person managing safer sex practices with others? Alex Fox tackles dating after divorce and non-hierarchical polygamy. And Ollie Peart gets minted. It's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters. And we've had such a great response to my interview with Jim Finch last month. If you haven't heard the episode yet, uh, please do go and check it out, particularly if your name is Sajid Javid. Uh, Mook on Twitter, at The Modern Man, says, Ollie, Jim's story should be required listening for GPs unwilling to prescribe medical marijuana. Simon at Facebook.com slash Ollie Man uh, said, we've recently started treating our son's severe epilepsy with cannabis oil. The cost is ridiculous. It is our biggest monthly bill. It's absolutely disgusting that someone's profit margin is so big when it comes to fixing poorly people. Uh, And Lauren says, Ollie, my heart broke for Jim. Here in Canada, I'm smoking weed for much less and just, quote, for fun. It's so unjust, so unfair and so infuriating. Jim can't get his medication. Uh, Thank you for all of those. I've passed them on to Jim as well. Uh, On a separate matter, apologies if you were disturbed by Ollie Pitt hijacking the podcast feed a few weeks ago. Uh, Caitlin has been in touch to say, Ollie, I don't have a smart car, so I couldn't skip that trailer you put out without pulling over. But 20 minutes of Captain Spronk was testing my patience. After three listens of the Ollie Man song, the perfect opportunity presented itself to ring my sister and catch up, because it was the only way to get out of hearing that song again. Shannon, you saved my life by answering that phone. Uh, Thank you, Shannon. Well done. And sorry about Mr. Pitt. He's incorrigible. Uh, A massive modern man sloppy socially distant kiss to all of our new beer money donors since I last checked in. Scott Barnaby, Andrew Johnson, Matt Watt, Celia Clements, Andrew Billington, Mark Drew, Mike Lewis, Stephen Bedford and Matthew Graydon. Heroes all who have signed up to send us regular monthly money, which helps us keep the lights on and bring you amazing stories each month. Thank you so much. Uh, Pledge what you can at modernmanwith2ends.co.uk slash beer and help us keep the show on the road. And from beer to coffee, 
My thanks as well to Pact, who are our sponsors for this episode. Now, they post award-winning speciality coffee, freshly roasted moments before it's shipped through your letterbox. So if you are getting a little bored of the supermarket selection of coffee out there, seriously, check out Pact. There are always over 15 different brews on their menu. And you can be reassured by their ethics as well, because Pact buys direct from farmers and pays above the fair trade base price. Most importantly, though, the coffee tastes good. Uh, I have right here... A medium roast Guatemalan jobby with hints of blackcurrant and cherry. It's called San Lorenzo. Mm, That is good. Uh, It has been brightening my mornings in February, which genuinely is a very, very important part of getting through the winter for me. Why don't you make a pact to make better coffee? We'll help you get started with a free V60 kit worth 11 quid for new customers. Go to pactcoffee.com. That's P-A-C-T coffee.com. Create your flexible coffee subscription and enter the code MAN at checkout. That's important. M-A-N-N. And then you will get a free brewing kit with your order mine's teal it's very charming if you are a new customer a free v60 and filter kit when you first sign up to a packed plan for speciality coffee through your letterbox don't wait go to packedcoffee.com and create your coffee subscription Uh, right on this month's episode you will learn what uses 238 kilowatt hours of electricity you will learn how many scripts to pitch to the simpsons to get your idea greenlit and you'll learn how to take a trip around the house of dreams. Let's go. Time for the Zeitgeist with Manscaped, your trends tested with Ollie Peart. And Ollie, the big cliffhanger you left us on last month, is it fungible or fungible? I still don't know. I say fungible. You know, F-U-N-G-I-B-L-E, fungible. Has anyone openly laughed at you for saying it like that? People don't laugh about NFTs. This is the one thing I've discovered, Ollie. It's not a laughing matter. <laughs> None of it's hilarious. Uh, you remember we're talking about NFTs because Manfan Alex asked you, Ollie, last month to test out the trend for NFTs by challenging you to set up your own. Uh, in response to which, last month, you just told a really bizarre story about a woman who kept farting in a jar. But I know you've been on quite the journey since then. Well... Actually, I don't think I've really understood the exact logistics behind it, what it was, right? So essentially... Oh, good. We're going full you and yours, are we? All right, I can do that. So we've heard all about it, Ollie. Tell us what it means. (laughs) It's basically a digital certificate. It's a long serial number that's created on the blockchain. That is where cryptocurrencies are created, like Bitcoin. And no one owns it, but there is only one. It's completely decentralized, yeah. There is only one of this serial number. And the majority of NFTs are created on the Ethereum blockchain, right? The creation of which is called minting, by the way. If you hear somebody say that they're minting an NFT, all it means is that they are getting a unique serial code from the blockchain, which uh, has been created using lots of mathematics and computing power. And didn't exist until the point at which they minted it? Or is there a list of serial numbers and then it's a case of choosing one? No, it didn't exist. And actually, this is right at the heart of the biggest problem with NFTs. Now, when we said that we were going to do NFTs, it is perhaps the first time ever in modern man history where our listeners (laughs) got in touch with me, grabbed me by the lapels and basically said, what the fuck are you doing? Do not make an NFT. Yes, we have had some pushback. Um, This is an anonymous email that I had to our inbox, but it's typical of a handful that I've received. Hi, Ollie, I'm a big fan of the podcast, but I'm very disappointed to see the show going into NFTs. 
Talking about silly fads is fine, but NFTs are part of crypto's massive harmful impact on the environment and have also been associated with numerous scams, theft of art and possibly money laundering. Yeah, and do you know what? It was a big surprise to me when people got in touch about it because I was thinking, why? What's the problem? It's just cryptocurrency. What's the big issue? And the only way for me really to sort of discover that was to go and go and pursue the challenge. And a few of the things that I have done will make one or two of our listeners a little bit angry. However, what I'm hoping it will do is lift the veil on NFTs and educate people. And it doesn't have to be an artwork, right? So last time I said I thought it had to be an artwork because that's what I understood at the time. Actually, in the month since, because it is genuinely such a huge trend, isn't it? And it's being written about in the mainstream media all the time now. In the month since, I've learned anyway out in the world that it doesn't have to be a piece of art. Like you said, it can be anything. So what, what was your idea of what it would be? that you would try and chill? Well, we work in the audio business, Ollie. And uh, so I thought, oh, well, could I could I auction off a piece of audio? Something that might have a little bit of value to somebody. So I thought, right, what have I got? And the answer is our first ever recording of the Zeitgeist in like 2015. Do you remember that recording? I do remember meeting you in St Pancras Station because we were meeting each other for the first time. Producer Matt hooked us up like a first date. We didn't know each other. Yeah. And... The, the thing I couldn't get out of my head the whole time we were talking was like, you've been engaged to your fiancé for how long and you're still not married? <laughs> and I was like, I think I asked you about it on mic, but I felt like I couldn't really. I was like, this is so weird. Like, how long is it? And still you're not married. Still, six years later. <laughs> still not married. And I thought, actually, that's really great because if you're a fan, that might be something that holds a little bit of value. It'd be like, oh, wow, yeah, no, I actually own this first ever recording. But one of the things with NFTs, which is also very popular, is rather than selling sort of individual artworks, you sell collections, groups of things. So think of it like uh, trading cards, baseball cards, that kind of stuff. You know, you can own a set, own a collection. So I thought I would turn the recordings into into a collection. So I split them up into five. Five NFTs created as part of this Modern Man collection. But all from the same one recording of us talking for 10 minutes. All for the same one recording. So you could own part one, part two, part three, part four, part five, or you could own them all. That seems like blatant Ethereum grabbing, if I may say. (laughs) I mean, that's disappointing. Because yes, I think a fan might be interested, you know, in a real world analogy, if it was recorded on reel to reel tape, (laughs) if we'd had handwritten notes to that first session, a fan might at a charity auction pay, I don't know, 50 quid to own the first recording but not a fifth of it. This is at the crux of the NFT, isn't it? It's, it's whatever value you deem it to have. Yeah, but you made the decision to split it into five, is my point. So it's yes. about your estimation of what someone might pay for it. And I think you're being over-optimistic. That's what I'm saying. Well, this is one of the major issues with NFTs in the first place. And it is artificial scarcity. Basically, a digital asset, by its very nature, is something that can be recreated literally by copy and pasting. Right? Your image, that digital file or whatever. Yeah, right-click, save audio as, and I've got it on my computer for free. But what an NFT does is it says, no, this is the only version of that. But the reality is that the digital asset, if it's out in the public domain, can still be recreated as many times as you want, right? Somebody could just download that file and it's kind of there. So the only way that somebody would know that that single audio file is yours is by looking at the digital ledger, which no one's ever going to look at, that has that NFT associated with it. So the value isn't at all associated with the, the artwork, the asset. It's the NFT. It's the receipt. It's like the receipt having more value than the artwork itself. But when you say no one's going to look at it, 
that can't be true, can it, when it comes to, you know, Damien Hurst or Banksy or Tracy Eamon or whoever's been selling their stuff. Like, if they say, this is the one that I say is the one, then in future, anyone wanting to buy another one of their artworks would look at that ledger, right? Yes, that's true. It gives it a certain degree of provenance. Like One of the most expensive NFTs sold was by uh, an artist called Beeple, B-E-E-P-L-E. It was sold for $69 million at a Christie's auction. And that makes them one of the most valuable living artists today next to David Hockney and Jeff Koons. So yes, if you then go and buy Beeple, you want to check that that NFT is associated with that digital asset. However, that digital asset, that Beeple piece if i want to put that as my screensaver i can it's there i can have it there's no physical version of it it's not like having the mona lisa on your wall you know you you can have a picture of the mona lisa as your background on your screensaver that's fine but you haven't paid 69 million dollars for that okay so having decided that you're going to sell five bits of audio you then proceeded and i don't know whether this is because this is the way you do nft or whether it's because you're ollie pitt and you've been evangelizing about this for five years and trying to get me on the train (laughs) You then proceeded to set this up in VR, which necessitated me for the first time ever attending a spatial audio event. Why did you decide to do that? While I was researching NFTs, I spoke to a chap called Anton. He works at Imagine Labs. They're a creative agency. They specialize in creating virtual reality spaces. And he was explaining to me that actually the metaverse and NFTs are inherently linked. So, for example, if I have a living room in my virtual space and there's a sofa and I want to buy a different kind of sofa, I could do that through blockchain technology. And then that sofa can follow me through whatever virtual space. Sofa's probably a bad example, because I might not want to take a virtual reality sofa into, I don't know, Grand Theft Auto. However, if I buy a certain t-shirt or a pair of jeans, which are branded like Gucci or Versace, which are some brands that have actually got into NFTs, I could then wear that piece of clothing in whatever metaverse space that I'm in. But this isn't new, this conversation, is it? I remember conversations like this about Second Life in 2007. And the uh, the ultimate answer to that was, it doesn't matter because no one's going to play the game in 10 years' time, so don't worry about it. So <laughs> are we falling into the same trap again? If you're of a certain age, teenagers have grown up with um, computer games where you can buy things within computer games. So those things, mm. digital assets to them, already have value. So they've grown up in a very different economy and a very different mindset to us we're very much more analog you know physical things have value but that's not the way that they think so actually for them this makes perfect sense if you've got a virtual reality headset and you want to create your own living room your own space you could buy an off-the-shelf ikea uh, sofa nft if you wanted to but you could buy an italian designer one as well off the shelf and nobody else could own that you're saying you could, but is that true? You can you go could, to digital Ikea and buy a digital sofa, can you? Not yet, but this is what's being proposed. Okay, so the idea is you're going to mint this NFT of us chatting in five parts, then you're going to put it in the metaverse so that people can buy a slab of it to put on their digital gramophones. So how do you do the minting, first of all? So the minting is actually really simple. One of the biggest marketplaces for NFTs is a website called OpenSea.io, and you literally go on there you upload your digital asset, uh, type in all the metadata that will be associated with it, and then you click go or save 
or whatever it says, and it will do it. And it does all of that in the background. And that is free. Okay. The, the second part of it, creating the virtual space, is like, well, how do I do that? And there's a platform called Spatial, which is S-P-A-T-I-A-L, which is an events platform. So you, they have these digital spaces which are pre-made and you can set up events in virtual reality that people can access, not just in VR, but they can access on their computer or their mobile phone for an app and that kind of thing. They've also created it in a way that makes it really easy to display NFTs. The way that that works is it links to your Ethereum wallet and any NFTs that you own, and then you can link your wallet to Spatial and you can display those NFTs. Oh, wow. So it really is as easy as just uploading a photo from your camera roll. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing about that, when we're talking about you know knowing whether or not it's a, a digitally recreated version or the actual nft is that it what you're looking at is actually the nft you are looking at the original if you like so you created a virtual space and you decided to invite the man fans yeah quite a few people got in touch actually the room is actually at capacity with 50 people so we couldn't have everybody come along i also invited you and i was like i don't know how this is going to work because i don't have an oculus headset i have a, a macbook and a dirty martini, and I'm just going to get through this. So I went to spatial.io, and it asked me to access my camera, and then it took a picture of me, and it asked me to have a really straight face. So I pulled, like, the straightest face possible, like a passport photo, (laughs) thinking that it would then say, now do one where you smile, now do one where you frown, so we can regenerate you in AI. No, just the one where you look really terrible, and then it plots your face and does that thing like those apps do that make you sing along to pop videos where it makes your mouth move and it makes you smile, but it's not your real smile. It's what a computer imagines your smile would be based on where your cheekbones are, which is really weird anyway. And then it takes away your legs. So you have a face (laughs) and a torso, but above your head, there's a live video of actual you drinking your dirty martini in your Mm pyjamas, but you have no legs and you kind of float through the space, which I could access just on my computer. Mm -hmm. And... I mean, you've talked before on the show about how amazing spatial audio is when you're in virtual space. It's the first time I've ever used it. It is amazing that I could walk around this virtual chat room. Basically, that's what it is, isn't it? And as I got closer to real people who are connected to their headsets or sitting in their sitting rooms, I could have a conversation with them, but I could still hear the burble and murmur in the background of other people. And it was like walking around a bar. It was amazing technology. Yeah, it is amazing. There are still obviously like, you know, one or two teething problems. One of them, I think, is that whole kind of uncanny valley sort of feel, which is that it, yeah, it does superimpose your face and you just look really weird and there's no emotion. I mean, I was, I did have a VR headset on and when I was explaining to people about the NFTs and, and launching them, you know, this is a launch event. It was drinks, you had your dirty yeah. martini, had a glass of wine, that kind of thing. Uh, I was explaining, I had a smile on my face. I was like, yeah, da, 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 da. no emotion shown whatsoever yeah. from the crowd. They're just, stand, they're just standing there. And actually, some of the VR companies are getting around that by not trying to replicate your face as real as possible, but making more like a Pixar character. Because you know that thing that's often said about virtual worlds, which is that disabled people can use them for escapism. You know, in, in real life, I'm confined to a chair, but in virtual reality, I can move around. It was like the opposite of that. In real life, I have a range of mobility and emotion. Yeah. In VR, I'm just this headless thing and I keep walking into walls. One thing to note about it, and you know I'm a massive virtual reality advocate, is that I have used it on both computer and in VR and it it just does not compare. When you're on a computer, it's just, 
it's no way near as good. You know, I had all of the NFTs on the wall and you you can kind of, you can fully immerse yourself in them. I made a, a little art display of photos from my New York trip. And they were on a wall. It looked like they were on a wall. You could walk up to the wall and see it. Yeah, exactly. I should say as well, it was a really nice way. I mean, I'd have preferred to be in a real space, but it was a really nice way to meet some man fans. There was a guy there called Lee who asked if he could become the man ambassador for Spatial. <laughs> and I was so taken by this sort of quasi face-to-face accosting <laughs> that I instantly was like, yeah, sure, you can be the ambassador for Spatial. But then it turned out that he was already the ambassador for Frome in Somerset. And oh. I was like, well, you can't be both. And then someone else piped up from behind him was like, oh, are you in Frome? I'm in Frome. <laughs> I was like, it's so weird. We're in this virtual space and they were like, oh, you listen to the modern man. Where are you, Castle Street? I'm in, you know, Drivers Avenue. So weird. Yeah, that's amazing. The other thing you might have noticed, actually, Ollie, if you were walking around, is that I had a dedicated space to explaining one of the major problems with NFTs. Did you see that? I did. You were being very responsible. Yes. Even to the people that were in the room who you were grooming to buy the product, Yeah, there was a little display saying that Ethereum's a bit dodge. Yeah, I had a display with a graph and a, a little article there explaining the most colossal issue with NFTs, in my view, and that is the environmental impact of these things. It's staggering. But does it use any more computing power than buying a mop head on Amazon? I mean, everything involves a lot of computing power. Yes, it almost certainly does. So one Ethereum transaction uses 238 kilowatt hours of electricity, but the average household in the UK uses around eight and a half to 10 a day, Right. So that's one Ethereum transaction using 238 versus 10. 100,000 Visa transactions use 148 kilowatt hours, which is less than one Ethereum. Now that puts it in context, yeah. And why Modern Man fans are going to be so annoyed at me, the ones that were really anti-NFTs, is that I didn't create one NFT. I created five. Yeah. So you could have done how many Visa transactions? Well, five, well, well, I can't even work that out. Almost a million. Yeah. That's pretty terrifying. And actually, blockchain generally, you know, when we're talking about blockchain, it's really easy to just think, oh, yeah, no, you know, it's just a, a quick way to make money and that kind of stuff. It, its impact is huge. One Bitcoin transaction uses almost two and a half thousand kilowatt hours of electricity. But, you know, there's stuff that people have shipped over from China, and that has an environmental cost as well, just to make their lives marginally more convenient. You know, what are you buying in that visa transaction? You're buying something that's likely to have harm to the environment. But the one thing to say, and the reason it's worth highlighting, is that actually there are people that have recognised that this is a problem. There's a cryptocurrency called Ripple, and Ripple works slightly differently. Each of their transactions uses 0.0079 kilowatt hours. So if you were to mint an NFT on Ripple that would have far less impact on the environment. I'm glad that you put it on the virtual wall and didn't go around whispering into everyone's ear, you're killing the planet, because the point was to do a a launch to see whether people would actually invest in your NFTs. Did anyone invest? No. Right. Uh, And do you know what? I'm really pleased and oh I just yeah it's want... <laughs> no, a convenient no, no. get out clause no, isn't it no, oh now it fits your eco credentials you're pleased to have failed a challenge <laughs> i'm genuinely really really pleased because you know my journey through nfts you know that especially for me the, the environmental impact is a really really major problem so i'm not going to sell them now but the minting is the bit that takes the 
effort, isn't it? Or is it just the fact that it's because someone has to use Ethereum to buy it, that also it, then has the environmental That's effect. another transaction, yeah, involved in it. Right, so okay. every time that, that transaction happens. Um, so yeah, right, I've already admitted 750,000 Visa transactions already. Fine, okay, I hands up to that. I'll have to do something about yeah. that. God knows what. Uh, but I'm not going to sell them. You know, until there's an alternative way for us to do it where you know it uses less energy. But one thing I will say, and I will say this because this is a big thing when people talk about the NFTs, is they think it's a bubble and they think it's going to go away. And from yes. all of the stuff that I've found and discovered and looked into with this, I can tell you now they are not going anywhere. They will change and they will adapt. But actually, especially the younger generation, there is value in NFTs and selling digital assets. And I know there's lots of like questions about you know, artists being undercut and people making money, like, you know, like basically Ponzi schemes, essentially what's going on. But I think that NFTs as a technology will adapt and I think they will be here forever. Okay, I'll put a link in the show notes uh, so people can go onto Spatial and, and have a look. And like I say, it's worth doing just just if you've never done it before, just to see what it looks like. You can go and visit it. That doesn't have any impact in the environment. And I'll drop in from time to time just to see if there's anybody in there. And you'll, you'll teach them how to clap. If you press C, you clap. It's like being on yeah. Steve right in the afternoon. That was quite funny, wasn't it? I said, uh, yeah. I said, you can press C, <laughs> press C, and it claps, and everybody was like, right. If uh, you have a trend that you would like to see Ollie test for your benefit, then do head over to modernman with two ends.co.uk and fill in the feedback form. And Ollie, let's try and right this environmental wrong that you've done this month. Uh, Mm. with your challenge for next month. It comes from Katie, who says, I'm a British expat now living in America. I currently run the world's first and largest human composting facility in Washington State. Mm. (laughs) I'd love to tell you about the environmental impacts of the death care industry and all about human composting. Wait, what? When you said human composting, I was like, oh, right, I'm going to just crap in a bucket and then that's fine. You're talking about composting dead bodies. That's right. I don't know how... I'm fascinated how it works. My understanding of composting from a traditional sense is that you just get some old pallets, stick them out in your back garden and stack them up and then you just chuck stuff in it. So if that's what they do, then that is disgusting. It's the circle of life. (laughs) It is a bit Um, like that, isn't it? Before all that, though, we must pause to thank our friends at manscaped.com for sponsoring the Zeitgeist. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, if there's one thing that I love, you know, forget my partner, what I love, on Valentine's Day, it's a couple of really smooth, shiny balls. I think a lot of like dating in any circumstance, whether you're with your long-term partner or whether you've just sent the cards that morning in the old-fashioned way, is about confidence, isn't it? And if you've, if you've got the confidence to walk into that bar or restaurant or cinema and think, I just have a really magnificently trim set of balls today, how are you going to be feeling compared to if you hadn't? Also, one of the staples of Valentine's Day morning, uh, and this has given me an idea, is is breakfast in bed, right? So what you could do is shave your balls the <laughs> night before and then right. uh, present them <clears throat> like a couple of boiled eggs. In the- yes. <laughs> could you? I reckon I could get and mine. would be the soldiers? I don't know. No, no, no. You wouldn't need soldiers. You wouldn't want to dip anything in these, trust me. But, you know, right. with the lawnmower 4.0, with the lawnmower 4.0, I can't even say it. I've just got this image of fucking boiled egg testicles. <laughs> with the lawnmower 4.0, you could you could achieve such a such a spectacle. I mean, that does strike me as, as one for someone who's in a long-term relationship to experiment sure. with, when consent can be assumed. <laughs> but uh, but if you're going on your if you're going on your date, 
I think it is useful to have a trim around first and make sure that everything is looking good for the big day. The performance package 4.0 from Manscaped includes the lawnmower 4.0 designed to trim hair on loose skin and the weed whacker, the nose and ear hair trimmer, so you don't go around looking like um, Jeffrey Palmer. Am I the only person who's ever referenced Jeffrey Palmer in a Manscaped promotion? I reckon I am. Uh, yeah. You can get 20% off and free shipping with the code MAN, M-A-N-N, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code MAN at manscaped.com. Join Cupid and shoot your arrow with Manscaped this Valentine's Day. Uh, thank you, Ollie. See you next month. See you next month. In a moment, a Hollywood story from our guest, Jack. But first, it's time for our record of the month. It comes from jazz powerhouse Poppy Ajuda. It's called Holiday from Reality, and it's out now. Think I need a It's often said that a good idea for a movie can be summarised in a single sentence, an elevator pitch, which is easier said than done. But my guest today, Jack Barth, certainly came up with a great one, even if his film didn't come out exactly the way he'd expected. Originally, Jack had wanted to be a doctor, but while studying at Stanford in the 70s, he found himself editing the humour magazine there, The Chaparral, and loved it so much, he decided to devote his career to comedy writing instead. His work in print got noticed, but to make the leap to screenwriting, he had to fight his introvert instincts. I was invited by several people to come out to L.A. and possibly develop programs for them. And they were all so nice and so sweet. And in New York, if people don't like you, they tell you. In L.A., if people don't like you, they tell you they love you. Mm. And, and I got out there and nobody wanted to work with me. I got a great agent named Ari Emanuel. I wasn't getting enough work and he just kind of like just stopped taking my calls. So I lost him. Um, but not because of the quality of what you were writing, but because you think of the quality of your kind of in-person schmoozing. Yes, but I don't want to just presume. Maybe I'm a terrible writer. You know, it's, it's, that's certainly a possibility. And, and again, it, LA is the worst place to live if you're not successful and not working, it's just the loneliest place you can be. Even I had friends there, but they live an hour away and you don't want to drive there in traffic. And so it was, it's just super lonely. That's interesting because I sort of imagine that for a young creative, LA would be quite a fun place because everyone's in the same boat. Everyone's trying to make it. That's the impression that you get from dramas that are set there. I think you're friends with the people you knew originally or who live near you. And it's very hard to make friends with people who don't live near you, who don't work with you. Um, again, this is, you're, you're talking to someone who's really introverted. This is pre-internet, so you wouldn't be able to meet people online. For me, it was a stupid idea. And that's what really <laughs> ruined my life. Okay. But you're in it at that point. You're a writer. Or, right. You know, that's what it says in your business card. The next thing I did then, my old friend became the showrunner on The Simpsons. And he, he um, offered me the chance to write a script for The Simpsons. Wow. Based on having known you at college. Yeah. And, and also the writing I'd done in, in the interim. I'd done some really good magazine stories and so yeah so he just asked me to pitch him ideas and I went in there and I pitched 
something like 130 ideas because they have so many considerations that you would never know, like stories that are there were already something similar is in development because they look so many years ahead at that point. They knew they were going to be running forever or reasons that they couldn't use that character because they've been using that character too many times recently, things like that. Do you remember one of the ideas you pitched that you were really hot on that they rejected? I had some bad ideas. I had um, that the family goes on a holiday and gets and gets uh, hit in a head-on collision with a drunk driver who dies. <laughs> That's maybe a bit too Lots bittersweet even for The Simpsons. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, it probably was. Ultimately, with working with them, I pitched this idea about one of the really minor characters named Troy McClure, the, the washed-up uh, movie former movie star yes. played by the great Phil Hartman. And everyone loved Phil Hartman. They said, yeah, this is a great idea. Let's do it. A Troy McClure story. So I see. So they hadn't done a Troy McClure episode at all at that point. No, no. And and it was paired with um, Marge's sister, Selma, who also kind of was an interesting character who had never really been explored much except to have her marry people. And they mm. thought, oh, well, how about she marries Troy McClure? I remember that episode. Isn't that the one with the Planet of the Apes musical? It is. It is. How did that process go then from pitching the idea to delivering the final script? Well, they're pretty controlling and they're all geniuses, comedy geniuses. So you don't feel like, you feel like you're in really good hands. And so it was just taken step by step until I finally just submitted it first draft and then they just changed it completely and made it so much better at the, uh, at the writer's table. So yeah, so they just have a room full of basically Harvard-educated geniuses, don't they? Who Literally Harvard-educated, yeah. yeah. yes. Who just yeah. adds a million jokes to your right. outline. Yeah, and they, they made it great. It's actually, I think, one of the, considered one of the funniest episodes um, and thanks to them, most of the jokes are theirs. So that must have been a positive experience. Sounds like it's still you're still smiling talking about it. Sure, it was especially at the time because The Simpsons was considered the the place to yes. be if you were a, a, a comedy writer. But you just did the one. So what happened there? Don't know. Um, I, I think there's a whole new crew of people graduating from Harvard at that time, and they just they just hired all of them. But you must have got back in touch and said, I also have this idea about, you know. See, no, see, I don't do that. I, I don't impose myself on people. I, I just find that cringy. I know anyone, anyone else in the world would have done that. But I just, I just find it too cringy to, to pitch. But even for an introvert, it's a follow-up, isn't it? It's not a pitch. It's we've just done this successful thing together. Should we talk about something else we could do? But you felt nervous even to submit that. Yeah, and also I was living... Um, probably more in London than I was living in LA at that time. I'd kind of been seduced over to London. I've always loved it here. Uh-huh. And I started working with um, Jonathan Ross, he, who read my book, Roadside America, and wanted to do something with that here. Okay. And so I came over here to do a show called Americana for Channel 4. And so I just started doing occasional work with him. So, I mean... Not The Simpsons, but still prestigious enough working with Jonathan Ross and Channel 4. Yeah, and just more fun. I just really enjoyed it here better. People were more my, 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 my speed here. They, they used to be. They used to be self-deprecating. <laughs> um, and then I finally, in 2000, just moved here full time. Um, and then a year later, I met my wife. And I just basically started a family here. And then I continued working with Jonathan and making television series. Yeah, I mean, the humility thing's interesting because you're underplaying some of this, you know, continuing making TV series. The point is, you were presumably paying rent or mortgage by being a writer. Right, and I know it's it's hard to believe anybody, especially now, could make a living being a writer. But, yeah, I mean, I was a really good writer. I'm not going to be humble about that, but I'm not going to brag about it either. Okay, so what's something that if I was to look through your archive 
you think I'd really enjoy. I, I wrote a series um, with Jonathan Ross called Japanorama on BBC um, Three. And it was really, it was great. It was really fun series. And, you know, even people for whom Jonathan isn't the, their cup of tea and who think that he's just going to go there and mock the Japanese, even those people really respect the show because it was, it was really, it was a funny love letter to Japan. But despite the success in television, Jack was also beavering away on another overarching ambition, writing his very own film. My dream was to sell a film script. All, all those years, my dream was to sell a feature film script. And I had written something like 25 scripts. What kind of things were you writing? Um, I co-wrote a script with a couple of my um, old comedy buddies called Escape from Hell. It was about three people who are sent to hell on a technicality and they decide they're going to escape. It was kind of a satirical adventure film. And it was, it was a really great script. And we actually had a producer who wanted to um, make it as part of her slate with Columbia Pictures. This was way back in like around 1990, I think. And... The week that she was going to pitch it was the week that the head of Columbia Studios, a Brit named David Putnam, who was really well-respected. Lord fella, Putnam, right? Lord Putnam. Yeah. Very good. He got, he got sacked, and, and all of his projects that were in development um, were dumped. And so that was the end of that. So that came tantalizingly close. You really thought that one might be made into a movie. Yeah, that was probably the closest we've, I have ever come to, to selling a script, yeah. And what can they be looking for? Is it to do with, oh, we've got this piece of talent, we want to work with this actor, so we're looking for things for him? It's that. It's also, we want something that's similar to the last thing that was successful, which is, of course, the stupidest idea in the world. And none of my, all my scripts were like, had nothing to do with anything, any kind of movement or genre. They're all just kind of ideas that I thought would be really interesting or funny. I was lying in bed thinking, you know, I could come up with Star Wars. I could come up with... Harry Potter, I can come with all these great ideas and I could write them and I can execute them beautifully and agents would just go, meh. And, and I know that happens to people. That happened to J.K. Rowling, I believe, with Harry Potter. And she just kept on going. She had the fortitude. I, I would not have the fortitude. I would just kind of give up after a few rejections and just say, well, screw them. They don't get it. And I thought, well, that's it's all internal. That's why you don't see a lot of good movies about writers because it's all internal um but what if i was a musician and i and i could and um i i suddenly had access to some great musical library like all the greatest songs of say the beatles the most successful best the popular music band of all time um what if they didn't exist i was the only person who remembered their songs but they they didn't exist and i had access to just i had the ability to just use their song catalog I bet you I would get out there and I could put a band together and nobody would care. And people would just go, these songs, are nothing special. And, and so that's what made me think, well, this could be, this could be a story, a three-act a three story because it can be about a, a failed songwriter who suddenly one day, for reasons undisclosed, has access to the music of the Beatles and no one else remembers them. And then he gets out there and people... Well, they kind of can see some of the songs are nice, and they, you know, he's definitely more successful, but he's just not. It, it, he's not the Beatles. He doesn't get his Beatlemania, and there's reasons why that would probably be true. You know, it's it was it was a, a different era, and also because it wouldn't reflect my story. I wanted to reflect my story where he just kind of gets met with indifference um, to the Beatles songs, and then he kind of has comes around towards the end where he realizes he's just needs to write his own songs. Okay, I was going to ask what the sort of uplifting conclusion would be. Because <laughs> I was thinking of 
I guess that's a sort of Groundhog Day style high concept, isn't it? You wake up one day and you're the only person who can remember the Beatles. Right. And you need that lesson at the end. You need right. you need the hero to think, oh, shit, I've been doing everything wrong. So the way that your character would have changed by the end of the film is he would think, stop trying to be popular, write my own experience. Right. And, and the whole cover version concept, his band only had one hit ever, and it was a cover version of another band's, another songwriter's song. And so that kind of has always played with his head through all the, through the years, that he couldn't have a, a hit with his own song, but he had a big hit with a cover version song. And that's when he meets John Lennon, and John Lennon tells him, well, that's because you have to write your own songs. It's, it's so not he meets a, John Lennon, but John Lennon hasn't been a Beatle because the Beatles haven't existed. Right. And because he wasn't famous, he wasn't shot by a, a, a nut for his fame. And so John Lennon becomes the guru that kind of sets him on the, on the proper course towards being his own person, writing his own songs. How does he meet John Lennon? He, he realizes through some very clever comical contrivances that if the Beatles band never existed, then the individual Beatles would be living different lives. And he tries to, to, to look them all up. I see. And, and John Lennon's doing what in this version of Parallel Reality? Well, my guy has trouble finding him because these, these guys are of a certain age and so they don't really have a big internet presence. And so he, he, he really can't track them down. But he remembers that in a famous interview, even though his memory's fading of the Beatles because he's got nothing to check to, to confirm his what he believes to be the facts. Um, an interview in the, I think it was 1970 with uh, John Lennon and Rolling Stone, where John Lennon said, probably maybe facetiously or maybe just a bit pompously, that if he could be a fisherman, he would, but he can't because he's a fucking genius. And so he remem- our, our character remembers that and he goes, well, maybe he's a fisherman and there's a fisherman's union and he's like power to the people. He's a union man. So he looks up the union and he, he locates John Lennon through the fisherman's union. And... If listeners haven't already hooked on to where this story is going, they may not realise why I'm asking this, but it will become apparent. Was there a romantic story in your script? Yes. The female lead is uh, the bassist in his band, and they've been together for quite a while. And she just, she, she loves him and she supports him in his struggles. But then he, be, he, gets, he gets kind of a big head when he, he has a couple of minor hits with the Beatles. What songs does he release? <laughs> Well, the, his biggest success, he sells Day Tripper to a, a Christian boy band, and they <laughs> change it to uh, Pray Sinner, um, <laughs> and so he 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 kind of starts showing off that he's because they're a really big band. They're kind of like the One Direction of Christian boy bands, mm-hmm. and so he becomes kind of starts bragging and kind of impressing girls with that, and she overhears him doing that, and she just kind of says, yeah, "You know what? You you're not the person you were a year ago," and he just kind of blows up. And so they break up. And he, at the end, when he finally starts writing his own songs and he performs for the first time, she's there and they come back together at the end. I wrote a treatment originally. And it, was, it was really quick. For people who don't work in the film industry, that's like a three-page summary of... Yeah, it was a little bit longer, but it was, yeah, just saying, writing it out in prose like a story. Mm-hmm. Um, but also thinking about the structure of the film so that you... Three X structure is actually a really good idea, even though a lot of people break that mold. You have to kind of observe the mold before you break it, and um, I, it's just that's how I was taught to do it. Um, and to kind of, I can give you a here's a, a filmy metaphor. It's like a, a film is like a clothesline. You need to have a peg at, at at certain points in the clothesline. In order, in other words, you have to have something to keep people going through the film. You can't just have a big saggy bit in the middle. It, it has to have 
unexpected changes throughout the film. You can't just have a twist ending. You have to have pull the viewer in. So I wrote it out like that with beat by beat. And then um, I, I was I was friends with um, Mackenzie Crook, who um, was a family friend. Who he, he kind of came up in stand-up comedy with my wife. Mm-hmm. And um, he was looking for something to do. And I said, well, do you want to write this script with me? I know he's a big Beatles fan and he's a fantastic guy and really talented. And so he So you gave Mackenzie Crook your treatment and said, "Would yeah. you like to write this with me?" Yeah. Yeah. Did he want to be in it because he's an actor really as well, well as a writer? Yes, isn't he? originally he was going to be the lead character, but it because it took so long to get this thing launched and he had had some great success in the interim, we just realized he's he's really not the right age. We really wanted this mm. character to have been a veteran of 10 years of rock and roll. So he, so let's say he starts in his early 20s, he should be in his early 30s. And by that point, Mackenzie was in his 40s and he might have passed, but he just thought, you know what? And he was interested in directing. He, so he said, what if we what if we put me in as the director? And we actually got a, you know, a lot of interest in that. Okay, so there, there you have a, a partnership that makes sense because you've got this idea and you've got someone else providing the pizzazz and the chutzpah, right? Who's like knocking on doors saying, I'm the guy from the office come and give me a, a chance to pitch you an idea and that's going to work better than you going in being self-deprecating and, and withdrawn. Absolutely. Although, ironically, uh, Mackenzie's agent didn't like it and so I had to go out and find my own agent, which is, of course, something I dread. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but luckily, luckily, somebody realized that it had, it had potential. And then she met these, uh, this producing pair um, at like a mixer event and told them about it. And there's some... There's some dispute as to exactly what went on. I think there was a story that came out that where they 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 liked the idea of Mackenzie being attached because they were really looking for. It felt to me like low hanging fruit, like existing um, material or a connection to a to a existing star. And this had both. This had the Beatles as the kind of the the existing hook and it had Mackenzie and so they were really interested and they took out an option on the script and it op- explain what option means that means that they have the re- they they kind of I can't sell the script to anybody else right. for the period of the option so it's um, a bit like a house being under offer basically yeah like you don't yeah. know if the deal is going to complete but no a, one else can right they pay me a, a little money like a, maybe a thousand or two per year or whatever it's not much but I also talk to them and like them and they and then we develop the script further and they had great notes. What was um, their idea for the film in terms of its tone? Like, if if that version of the film had come out and it was called cover version and Mackenzie Crook was the star, what would it have looked and felt like? I think it would have felt like a really good indie film. Hopefully, it would have felt like something like Groundhog Day. That was kind of the sort of film which I, th- I think that's a great idea. That's the kind of film I'd like to write. So quirky, quite low budget. But Surprising. accessible. It doesn't sledgehammer you. Like the, the romance is very kind of nuanced and subtle. And they don't have a big thing at the end where they suddenly get married or run to the airport to one has to catch the other before they get on their plane. None of that stuff. And so it wasn't a, it was every, the emotions weren't big. They were much smaller. It was more about what he, what, what the main character was going through, his struggle with being a charlatan by passing off someone else's work as his own. The biggest problem was that we wanted to do a, a low-budget indie film with the Beatles music so that it, what would happen is the budget would be 75% Beatles clearances. Um, and that, that's, a, that's hard to justify in any budget. I don't know if there's ever been a film where the music clearances were the majority of the budget. Well, and also that there hasn't been a Beatles musical, has there? And it's not as if people haven't had that idea before. So it, it must be 
that the Beatles, the surviving Beatles, don't want to license their music for that. So they're obviously picky as well. Yeah, although you get their permission as a courtesy, but you don't have to have it. It's owned by, um, as it happens, Universal, I believe. And so it becomes really more about how much money are you going to give us. Yeah, I remember reading an extract from Guy Hans's uh, autobiography. You know, he's the guy that ran EMI for a while, basically saying the only profitable part of EMI at that time was the Beatles' back catalogue. That's it. That's the golden goose. Right, right. And I guess they do have to control it in a way that to keep the rarity makes it more expensive. It makes it more desirable, and you can charge more for it for that reason. Okay, but you were given hope that that might be surmountable. But we were given hope because Nick Angel said he made his preliminary inquiries, and I think he maybe sent them the script. They said, yeah, we could... um, we could do this. It's not going to be cheap, but we could do this. We could clear this. So that was not like an impediment at that point. It was just the cost. It wasn't the clearance itself. And was it through Nick Angel that the script ended up then being at working title? Why, yes, Ali. It's exactly how that happened. Nick Angel at working title was chatting with a writer um, named Richard Curtis, who's, of course, your listeners may know, is the king of the rom-com. Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill. He wrote and directed Love Actually. So he's got a you know super successful CV, and he had some sort of deal to to develop some films for Working Title, and that's how we got our first offer for the film. I thought he was he wanted to produce this film, mm. and I assumed he had read the script because that's what you do when you offer a lot of money for a script is you read it first. How much money? Um, six figures. Okay. Low six figures, low-ish six figures. Okay, so I that's going that far and saying because I just I don't know, I'm not I'm not discreet. I just I just don't like to to give out numbers. But that was an exciting moment, though I presume. Like you've been waiting essentially your whole career to have a film green lit, and now the king of the rom com is saying, "I would like to make your film, and here's a lot of money." It was the dream. I know. I was I was actually at work when I was talking to my agent, and we got the final arrangements put together. Um, I worked for several years as an edit producer on um, on various shows, which is someone who just comes into the edit, for, with, takes the existing footage and writes funny or clever commentary over it. Um, and I was I had to step out of the edit for a minute to talk to my agent, and this is when she, she told me that they're, they're, they want to make an offer for, for the script. Later on, when we actually got the contract, his agent had inserted a, a clause that specified what the credits would be, that I would be a co-story writer with Richard and that he would get a sole screenplay credit, which really annoyed me because I didn't even know what the screenplay was at that point. It could have been all mine and he would get the screenplay credit. I didn't know. Couldn't you ask? We asked and they just said, look, we'll give you 50000 more if you just shut up and take it. And I, you know, been through the, the, I, I, I created this in 2011 and now it was twenty. 16, five years and no money. And I had a, a child and, you know, it was like five years old and a whole expensive life ahead of her. And I just, I just, I caved. I just said, okay, I'll just, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take the cash. You have to understand also I, how stupid I was. I miscalculated. I assumed that if he's making this film and working title, and I know it's going to be a good film and it's probably going to be really successful, I'm going to make a lot of money off of this in the back end because it's going to make a lot of money. I mean, I wrote The Simpsons in 1995 and I still get checks for in, the, in, the, in the thousands now. I thought the residuals on a, on a big hit feature film would, would be you know in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. And then I learned 
much to my chagrin, much later, that the British Writers Guild at some point gave back residuals to producers. British writers of uh, feature films do not get residuals from those films. The American Writers Guild specifies that every time someone buys a ticket for your film, every time a streamer licenses your film, every time you sell a DVD of your film, you get a few pennies. And that, that can really add up. You know, my, my successful friends who are writers, you know, they can retire on their residuals now. But because the British Writers Guild, and I, I've been trying to unravel this for a couple of years, I have no idea why they would have given back residuals. You know, writers don't have pension plans. Writers don't have security. Why would they give up their residuals? So the payday that you had, good as it was at the time, turned out not to be right, the beginning, I, but the totality. Yeah, it's been slowly dissipating ever since. Yeah. So if listeners haven't pieced together what the film became, this is the film that was released under the title Yesterday, when it eventually came out. Yes. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes. I'm just uh, listening to Jack's new song. Oh, yeah. What's this one called? Leave it be. Let it be. Well, rock on, Jack. Word has got out about a new pop phenomenon. I'm very excited. I've gotten some some money. I've gotten Richard Curtis and Danny Boyle making my film. Um, and then I found that um, Kate McKinnon, who's one of my favorite TV stars, was also attached to it. I just thought, this is, I'm living the dream. This is so great. And I'm going to be hanging out with Kate McKinnon and, and rubbing, you know, just going out to dinner with Danny Boyle and Richard Curtis and meeting all their cool friends. And they're going to say, hey, what else have you got? This is a great idea. Look, what else have you got? But not everything worked out the way Jack had expected. Still to come, a surprising visit to the set, a script with a twist, and the New York premiere that Jack wasn't invited to. That's next, after this. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever been in a situation where something is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? Because I've been there and have really struggled. My mental health has stopped me performing the way that I wanted to at work. I know Ollie Mann would agree with that as well. And doing things that I want to do as well. It stopped me from enjoying uh, things that I used to enjoy. And I reached out to get help and it took a very, very long time. Eventually, I did get help. But for some people, that's a little too late. Well, there's a new way that you can get help. Better help. That's a service that will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You'll be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Now, it's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. This is professional therapy done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise available, which you may not find available to you where you live at the moment. And this is available worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist and you'll get a timely and thoughtful response from them. And you can also schedule weekly video and phone sessions so you don't ever have to wait in a rubbish waiting room with crap magazines on the table. Another thing is that it's more affordable than traditional offline therapy. And if you need it, financial aid is available. 
You can visit their website to read testimonials that they have there. They're posted daily. You visit betterhelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P. And join over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. And even better, there's a special offer for Modern Man listeners, of course. You can get 10% off your first month if you visit betterhelp.com forward slash modern man. That's M-A-N-N. Back to my interview with Jack Barth. It's now spring 2018, and yesterday, as the film was to become known, has gone into production with Danny Boyle as director. As a result, Jack receives the balance of payment for his script and the chance to take his daughter, a huge fan of actor Kate McKinnon, onto the set, where he first begins to wonder if his involvement is being written out. I got to go to a day of, of shooting in London and I brought my daughter and Kate was really nice and everyone was really nice to me and they chatted. But then I could tell really, other than Richard and Matt, the producer, no one had any idea who I was. No one had any idea that anyone else had been involved in the script. And I think it was making Richard really uncomfortable. You strike me as someone, though, who when you get anxious about something, you carry it around with you. When did that feeling start? I was, uh, I'll be honest, I was a sucker. I, I was a, I, even though I'm really cynical and I, I have deep reservoirs of, of rage, I really <laughs> honestly thought, they're, this is going to be great. They're, they're doing me right. They're, they kind of, I understand how they don't want me involved because it's awkward for Richard. And I know they're selling this film as, you know, the two great English filmmakers together at last. Even though it, they see a bit chalk and cheese, it's going to be really interesting to see what they do. So, I know, I should have spoken up. I had so much chance to speak up. And I even knew, you know, I, I know some journalists, but I thought, you know what, I should just, I'll just keep my mouth shut because I, I don't want to taint this film. I want this to be really successful so I can make my millions and, you know, send my daughter to University of America. A year later, the publicity drive for the movie begins. And Jack is not invited to participate. There was a BBC podcast uh, about the creative genius of Richard Curtis and as someone who was visiting him in his studio while he was creating this film. In this case, the new film that I'm doing, I got a phone call from someone who said, would you like to write a film about one subject, which I wasn't interested in, or direct, I think, or executive produce, or have something to do with the film, which is the plot of the film we're talking about. And I said, I so like the idea of that plot that what I would like to do is write that film without ever reading the original script. So the actual idea is not mine. And then he started telling the press that he'd never read my... No, he says, I didn't read cover version until after I wrote my first draft. And I, even, I think even people who aren't in the business know you don't just write a first draft, you write many drafts. I mean, I had probably 30 drafts of, of cover version, and I bet he had at least as many... Of his, of, of his version of yesterday because he had to work with the production company, he had to work with Danny Boyle. There are many, many rewrites. It's not what you wanted. I mean, obviously what you wanted was for him to see your script and essentially make your script with a few Curtis sprinkles of fairy dust. But from his point of view, it's a legitimate thing to do, isn't it? If the production company that he's working with has bought your script, he's heard the idea, thinks it's a good idea, and thinks, you know what, I don't want to be too influenced by Jack's script, I'll write my own, and then I'll read Jack's script. That all makes sense, doesn't it? That's that's not a, a bad way to proceed with this process. No, but he did read the script, and he goes, oh, you know what, I should get John Lennon in there. 
And, and oh, that's a really good idea. He should be a fisherman. And I've got a really good idea for a joke at the end where like he suddenly discovers that Harry Potter doesn't exist. So those are the two examples then of things that are in the, the final version of Yesterday that got released, which I've seen, and by the way, is a good film and I enjoyed. Uh, and in that film, uh, there's the sequence with John Lennon being a fisherman, which you're basically saying couldn't have come from anywhere other than your script. It would be too much of a coincidence for him to have come up with that. Yeah, it's a, it would, it, that's a crazy coincidence. And even the whole yesterday scene played out in my script exactly the same, where he starts playing the song and people go, oh, that's really good. And, and he thinks they're taking the piss. Beat for beat, it's it's exactly the same in, in, in my version of the script. And then the bit at the end, there's a joke that because it's a sort of time travel narrative, Harry Potter doesn't exist in this world where the Beatles do. Right. Okay, so all those elements are in your original script and they're in the final version. And more, but let's get, it, I don't want to be too petty, but there are, there's definitely influence of my script in, in his version. Okay, but isn't that what they bought? I mean, again, isn't that fine? They've, they've, I understand it must be galling when you've written a script you think is better to see a final version that's not what you wrote. But the fact that good bits from your original script are in the final movie and people like them, what's the problem? Exactly. Well, this is it. This is a this is a distinction that that it sounds subtle, but it's actually everything. You can buy someone's script and you can do whatever you want with it, but you can't buy authorship. You cannot say I'm the author of this other person's ideas. You can you can do whatever you want with it, and I have no recourse. I can complain that they ruin my script, but not I have no legal recourse. I I've signed off my script, and they can do whatever they want with it. But they cannot just claim the person who buys the script can't just claim themselves as the author of that script. When did you first see the final script of the film? In, um, I think it was March, a couple of months before the film's release, a writer in Australia named Nick Milligan, nice guy, I've come to, come to know him, I've contacted him. He claimed that the idea for the film came from a, a, an e-book that he had published in 2012 that had a similar theme. I mean, there's, frankly, there's many time travel movies and such where people have proprietary knowledge of something that happened that no one else knows. It's not, it's, that's not the original idea. It's the way that was treated. But Nick had a claim and it got a lot of play. It was, it was in fact, it got it played everywhere. It was even in the Guardian. They ran a whole story about how this poor writer has been ripped off by Richard Curtis and Danny Boyle. And they just didn't, their response was, well, we didn't know. We didn't know about this. Whereas if they would just kind of have contacted me, I, the person who actually came up with the idea, I could have told them that I actually turned in the script before this ebook that I've never heard of was published. But they, they wouldn't do that. Instead, Richard wrote me a very stiff-sounding email thanking me for contributing that great idea, which was all mine and mine alone and wasn't his. And he, it, was, it, was, it was kind of between the lines. He just thanked me for this great idea that was mine. Mm. So he then emailed you a copy of the script. He sent me a copy of the script, and I read through it, and I could see it was profoundly different. Yes. It had become a Richard Curtis film. It is a Richard Curtis film, isn't it? Yeah. It's about a, a couple with an artificial impediment to their relationship. You know, oh, he never realized that Lily James was pretty before. He never realized that she was sweet and funny and nice and loved him. He didn't know that. So it was obviously, I would never think of doing that. But I could also see that he incorporated a lot of elements of my script, like um, the yesterday reveal, the John Lennon scene, you know, and, and a few other things, small, small things. But still, it wasn't a completely fresh script. What else was different? What was the biggest change? The biggest change was that the lead character was 
incredibly successful with these songs. Oh, that's right. He becomes a friend of Ed Sheeran, doesn't he? And he yeah. plays a big rooftop gig. Yeah, which I don't know. I, I know Richard loves the Beatles and he wants to think that's what would happen. But also, he's making a commercial, I mean, he's making a really openly big-hearted commercial movie in a way that it sounds like yours wasn't. Yours was absolutely trying to be of the greatest appeal it could in a kind of indie framework. And his is, I'm making a film for people that like love, actually. I, I disagree. I mean, I know you can't argue with success. And the film made over 150 million box office and probably another 50 plus in ancillary rights. But the truth is, you, you'll never know whether my film would have done just as well and, and, and would have received more kudos for it, for the script. You no, know? but he's trying to hit a different kind of vibe. Yeah, but I it? disagree that just because he's successful, that makes it a, a more accessible film. There's lots of successful films about like kind of lovable losers. So the film's made. When's your first chance to watch it? Um, I asked to see a screening and they, they, they allowed me to come to a test screening in West London two or three months before the film's release. Um, and so that's what it, it was a focus group screening and I saw it there and I, I could see, oh, it's really, it's got a lot of charm to it. I thought Himesh Patel was really interesting casting, really well cast, really good. Lily James, I thought was bland, but, but really pretty and cute and lovable. And, you know, I, I got that too. So you didn't hate the film? No, but, it, you know, you have to understand if you've written something and been working on it for seven years at that point, it's, it really does, it's an emotional pull to see it up on a screen. And even if it's been changed that dramatically, it still felt really emotional to see it on the screen. Mm. They had a world premiere of the film at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York about a month and a half before the film's release. And they flew in all the stars and they flew in Danny and Richard and all the producers, but they didn't fly me in. So I kind of, but, but this is the world premiere of the, probably the only film I'm ever going to have made. And, um, you know, I wanted to enjoy an experience with my daughter, who's like really interested in film and loves New York. So we, we, we just got on a plane. We, at our own expense, we flew out to... Did you tell them you were going? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, I, they, they were kind enough to, arrange, to at least arrange a couple of tickets. Right. Um, so they knew I was coming. That is bizarre, I must say. I mean, I'm trying throughout this interview to kind of be even-handed and put their perspective as well. But it is bizarre when the writer of the original script, whether you consider that simply a story or not, says, I am coming to the premiere that you don't say will pay for your plane ticket. Yeah, or hotel. Um, so, yeah, so they're all staying at the Soho Grand Hotel. It's a really lovely hotel. Not too far from the venue. And my daughter and I stayed at like a hotels.com place that we, you know, that was nearby. In fact, we only... It, it, it's, it, I can make this really pathetic if you want. It was like, Please. we flew in, the film premiere was on Saturday night. We flew in Saturday morning, stayed over Saturday night and left Sunday morning. And that, you know, because we couldn't afford to stay in New York all that long. And my mm. daughter was still in school. Mm. And yeah, we, we definitely felt like outsiders. The credits roll at the end and it was a very successful screening. People applauded and you could see uh, Danny and Richard's credit. And then all the producers. And, and by the way, written by Richard Curtis, that's the credit? Screenplay by Richard Curtis. Screenplay by Richard Curtis. Right. Yeah. And then all the producers' names, you know, people who no one cares about, you know, the associate <laughs> producers. No, it's true. You don't, I mean, the producers of the film are like these big British producers, Tim yes. Bevan or Fellner, major guys. Yeah. But no one knows who they are. I mean, nobody, no, no punter in the audience knows who they are. And then after the producers, after all the stars of the film as well, even like the actors who had like one scene after all of them there's my story credit like and pretty much while you everyone's already kind of got their back turns and putting their coat on 
story by Richard Curtis and Jack Barth. Right. Well, Jack Barth and Richard Curtis. So that's my agent got me that name first. Okay. That pissed me off more than most things because that was really such an obvious diss. That was really just saying, we are going to bury you. And I, I actually got real upset about that. And this is the, only the other second time that I'd email Richard and said, I really think that's wrong. And I was, because I was told by the, by Matt, the producer, well, that's what, you know, Danny and Richard, they have their names at the beginning because they wanted to really keep it simple, you know, not to have, not, not too many names. Yeah. Not too many names, but ours. And that's kind of how they wanted to do the credits at the end. I said, well, that no one does that. Everyone puts the story credit next to the screenplay credit. That's just convention. And he's like, well, I can name a few films where they have it. It's like, I'm really not happy. And they realized that if, if it was too early to make me unhappy because then I, while the film's just in its big publicity rush, I could have done something. I could have gotten it many ears, uh, you know, that would listen to my story. Um, but they placated me and they, they, cha- they changed the credits so that my, my credit came after uh, Richard's screenplay credit. Okay, so on the final version of the movie that is released... The three credits after the end of the film are directed by Danny Boyle, screenplay by Richard Curtis, story by Jack Barth and Richard Curtis. I'm not certain. They may have had the actors first, but I'm, I'm not certain. So you don't have an objection, actually, about the final version of the film in no, that sense? No, but I object to the fact that I had to fight for it and that I had to fight to get listed in IMDb and everywhere else. I mean, you have to understand, this film played in my head for all these years. And, and suddenly I'm not even a part of it anymore. It's kind of a classic Hollywood story where I'm looking through the window at my, my, my family having Christmas without me. And you put the original script cover version up online so people can download it and see for themselves. Why did you do that? Um, I, I'm, I'm for total transparency. And part of what I want to prove is, is that cover version is a better script and that it contains all these elements that I'm claiming it contains. And... And I let people judge for themselves. They may not think it's a better script, but they will see that it contains all these elements. In all the publicity, Richard took all the credit for all the scenes in the film, mm. many of which were mine. Is some of that the interpretation of the person who was interviewing him? He'd said, I didn't read Jack's script until after I wrote the first draft, and they interpreted that in a different way to what he meant. Yeah, is that but his it, fault? No, but it is his fault to claim that Sarah Silverman gave him the idea for the Harry Potter joke or that the John Lennon scene came out of some bullshit reason. I mean, it's really funny. He asked me originally, he said, what was your, how'd you come up with the idea for this film? And I, I told him, you know, about how success doesn't necessarily happen, no matter how well deserved. You know, we're, we're not living in a perfect meritocracy. And he just couldn't understand what I was talking about at all. I mean, I'm just trying to, you know, from his point of view... He's trying to get publicity for his own movie. Richard Curtis, Danny Boyle, the Beatles are big names. Jack Barth isn't. If he'd answered the question honestly, how did you get the idea for the film and said, well, a script by a guy you haven't heard of called Jack Barth got optioned by Working Title and I heard about the idea and I thought that sounds good so I rewrote it. That's not an answer, though true, that is going to put many bums on seats, is it? I don't care. I'm not trying. He cannot say that he created things that I created. He cannot steal my authorship. And that's really specifically what I'm talking about here. It has nothing to do with with the, my position in the credits or how he changed the film. It's purely that so in interviews, a big guy outside of the movie, that's what you object to mainly. Yeah, that and which of course spun the narrative for the whole public in general and which meant that I would have no career bump from having created a film that made 
over $200 million. So talk me through that, because people in the industry know that it was based on your script. Why would that have affected your career? Nobody in the industry knows it was based on my script. They look and see Richard's interview, and it basically sounds like all I did was have an idea. Were you pleased to see people responding to the original script? Yeah, although people are dicks, and you know, <laughs> everyone's just trying to tear everyone else apart online it's like that's the world and and so it was it was really some of the comments are really stupid but i heard from a guy named Irfan shah who who said i've read your script cover version and i and i i wrote a Substack piece on it um i want to know what you think are you okay with it and i and i went there and um it was unbelievable it was like every writer's dream it was like we missed out on possibly one of the great British comedies of all time. You know, this I've read the script and he just went through it and was saying, all, you know, all the br- brilliant things in it. And, you know, if you only see the original script, you'd see we, we missed out on an g- absolute gem. That, and I just couldn't believe it. And that that's, that's the most gratifying thing I've ever seen. I mean, it, it seems to me like everyone in the industry would say, if you were an ingenue in your 20s, Look, man, just write another script and then pitch them that one. Don't don't make a fuss about this. Keep your head down and another opportunity will come along. Yes. That's why no one ever does this in the business. No one ever goes public because they will not have careers afterwards. And also going after Richard Curtis publicly, it's just, you know, he is national treasure status, isn't he? You know, Blackadder, Forwardings and a Funeral, founded Comic Relief. You know, if you're going to pick a target to be upset with publicly, it's not one that there's a lot of appetite to see brought down. Well... Maybe I think we live in a mean world that, that likes to bring down even nice people. So I'm not I'm not so sure I'd agree with that. I mean, it sounds like you've burnt every possible bridge with him, <laughs> and every and the whole business. After this, um, I could not get an agent, and I, I mean, it's probably partly due to my age, but probably more so due to the fact they knew they could never pitch my films. You got that sense person. that you've been blacklisted. Yeah, yeah. How real? How tangible has that been? I've not got an agent, I've, and so I'm not. I'm certainly not going to try and get out there and, and sell scripts without an agent. See, it's interesting because again, like perhaps the usual advice might be, well, it's fine. You can still write a script, but then you can sell it under an alias. But that would <laughs> irk you even more, given the fact that's what the whole issue is about. <laughs> exactly. There's a weird irony, isn't there, that you wrote a script about ideas. And you're sort of involved in a battle about it now in terms of the authorship of ideas. Like the hero of your story wakes up and is the only one that has an idea that the rest of the world knows. And now you're still involved in the story and it's all about that kind of authorship. It's it's too ironic. It, it feels contrived, doesn't it? It's just <laughs> someone someone decides they can't they can't use someone else's work and claim it as their own in the end. And that's the happy ending. And in, in both versions of my story. Yes. And yet in the real world, no, he's happy to, <laughs> he's, he's happy to have taken the credit, you know, and, and that's the way it's always going to be. Jack Bath. We did reach out to Richard Curtis's agent for a statement in response to Jack's version of events. He has so far declined to respond But here is the statement that he gave to the 237 Film School podcast, who interviewed Jack back in 2020. We are well aware of Mr. Bath's claims, and they are, of course, refuted in general and in detail, as he knows. He was well paid for his work under the terms of the perfectly reasonable contract with working title and did receive a proper credit for his contribution, a contribution that I would say Richard has acknowledged often 
and enthusiastically. And I have put a link to the 237 in the show notes. It's a great podcast if you're interested in how films are made. It's where I first heard Jack's story. Uh, My thanks as well to Martin from that show for putting us in touch. And also in the show notes, you can find Jack's original script, cover version, for as long as it stays up online. There's a link to that. And I've linked to the Richard Curtis episode of In the Studio from the BBC World Service, which was the podcast we played a clip from, which is well worth a listen as well. Uh, Still to come, Alex Fox on dating after divorce and sharing your toys. That's next, after this. Roses are red, violets are blue. It's Valentine's with Alex Fox and she'll tell you how to screw i don't know i hadn't thought <laughs> to the end of it when i started she'll make you turn puce anyway you get the idea it's february how are you alex uh i'm grand thank you you've been trying to cram in london experiences before your much trailed relocation to new york i understand indeed i've been trying to get the most out of the big smoke before i temporarily set fire to my life here for the next six months one expedition of which has included going to an amazing place called the house of dreams which is the residence and art studio of uh, a guy called Stephen Wright. It's up in East Dulwich. He lives there with his fiancée, Michael. And it's very difficult to describe this place. It's so maximal. Everywhere in the house, every single surface, including the ceilings, the floors, the garden, is clad in a mosaic of found objects, everyday paraphernalia, like bright bleach bottles or uh, abandoned dolls or matchboxes, stuff that you see all the time, but which is arranged in such a way that it gives it a greater significance. Did you get invited or is this open to the public? It is open to the public, but only on very rare occasion. You have to contact Stephen via his website and book, because understandably, he, him and Michael don't want people just traipsing through their home all the time. Does he own this property or is he renting it? Because if I was the landlord... He owns it. (laughs) (laughs) Thankfully. I'd be a bit peeved if someone embossed their parents' false teeth into my uh, garden. Yeah, otherwise he's really fucked his deposit. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, he owns it, but it will be bequeathed to the National Trust after his his passing. Wow. It is... It's mind-blowing. Well, uh, time for our question of sex. I don't know whether it will uh, have the posterity to be passed on to the National Trust (laughs) after this month. (laughs) But it'll tickle our fancy right now brought to you thanks to our friends at thehandy.com. A sophisticated masturbatory machine that is to penis stroke what Michael Phelps is to breaststroke and lets you wank at up to uh, 10 faps per second. Uh, And our question comes from Mike, who is a 40-year-old chap divorced a year ago and back on the dating scene. He says, Alex, I have issues meeting normal, available women. I love that you're laughing because you know I'm going to return to that terminology straight away. (laughs) Uh, One romance was great. We hit it off and she was easy to be about, fun, and it's been great. The issue was she would accuse me of cheating. I know her two exes have both done this to her, but I have not, and I am not divorced due to infidelity, so it drove me crazy, and it ended with a lot of emotional blackmail from her. Then I met a lady who is a non-hierarchical polygamist. Those were not the words I was next expecting from Mike. Um, I am going into this but I'm not used to sharing my toys, as it were. Uh, This seems to be going well, and again, we have clicked. No physical stuff yet, and this is part of my request for help. Alex, how does this work, this relationship? How do I navigate it? Um, Blimey. 
Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's look, you know, let's park the non-hierarchical polygamy for just a moment and focus on the thing that perhaps until he mentioned that other people would have related to, which is you're in your, say, 40s like Mike, you're back on the dating scene as a divorcee and you just find it really hard to meet people who don't come with baggage, I suppose, from previous relationships. Well, yeah, um, I think perhaps part of the problems that Mike might be experiencing is that if he hasn't dated since, say, his 20s, his expectations of what is normal in your 40s when people mm. have lived for for decades and, and have history and have experience, he's framing that as abnormal, as crazy as baggage as you put it and I think he maybe needs to adjust his mindset and modify his expectations I don't think that everything he is saying is wrong absolutely not but I think that might contribute towards him having a more positive experience if he isn't writing off very normal women who've had very normal experiences sadly of things like being cheated upon as somehow bonkers and also recognize i guess that he comes to this with experience too doesn't he precisely and from someone else's position he's a 40 year old divorcee he's not the best catch he also <laughs> has going he also is going to be entering a relationship with as you're saying perhaps the preconception that someone he's dating who's 40 should be behaving like they're 20 which is quite weird anyway yeah uh, you're you're i love that after so long of doing the foxhole with me ollie um you are ameliorating the natural wisdom you already came equipped with and are becoming quite the relationship coach yourself because what you've just said is very similar to what i was told by naomi cambridge who's a relationship coach who i i, I really respect a lot of her work yeah well, i um, taught her everything she knows <laughs> She said that this term that Mike's using, normal women, again, was like a little bit of a concerning red flag for her. And she said, when whenever somebody says that they keep meeting the people who are crazy or they, they can't meet normal women, when someone de- describes a pattern of behaviour like that, when, when the same thing keeps showing up, often... The I do common- have a mate who, do- who does exactly this, so I'm listening carefully. Really? Yeah. Well, He's often- always like... Yeah, she was just mad. And it's always six months in. Like, she's always fine when they're shagging every day. Six months in, yeah, she was just really mad and clingy. (laughs) Well, the common denominator here is often the person doing the describing. It's the mic. It's the your mate. Um, And if you keep finding yourself in situations where you're uh, dating someone who you perceive to be problematic in in a certain way, there's one or two or possibly two of two things happening. Either you are perpetually attracting the same kind of person, those people seem to be coming into your life for some reason, or it's to do with the way that the behaviour that you are perhaps eliciting from them. And Naomi suggested that maybe to start off with, it might be a good idea for Mike to look a little bit at himself. What have his experiences been so far? What might have affected him in his perception of what, he wants from love and what love means to him and what happens in relationships so starting off with himself might be some good groundwork but nonetheless you know if you're on the dating circuit the second time round you are going to encounter people who aren't as he puts it easy 
to be around. Absolutely. And it's 100% reasonable to have boundaries on how you want to be treated, to not wish to be tarred with the same brush. I hear Mike's frustration that he's not uh, been a cheater, but he's been treated as though he is or will be by somebody who has trauma. Now, the word trauma is chucked around a lot these days, and it can be difficult to identify whether somebody is acting because they are affected by trauma. In a lot of cases, if somebody is referring to something that's happened in the past, old behaviour, as though they're worried about it happening in the future or they're almost assuming that it's bound to be happening in the present, that is often indicative that they are affected by trauma. And anybody who is operating under those circumstances again needs to do work on themselves. If Mike's dating someone who's been cheated on in the past, it will be impossible for him to prove to them that he's not going to cheat unless they are also wanting to do the work to alter their own point of view. So there's a lot of advice out there on how to date again without being paranoid or fearful if you've been cheated on. I think it's harder to find advice on what to do if you're dating somebody who is suffering from that sort of trauma. How do you make sure that you maintain your own boundaries and and don't become a free therapist for somebody else or put up with, with bad treatment because you're trying to be caring and kind, but also don't write this person off as unreasonable too quickly or Mike uses the word she drove him crazy I can really understand that but I would be cautious about using words like crazy particularly when people have been cheated on it's not uncommon for them to have been gaslit by a previous partner which means that they would perhaps have been told that they were crazy for bringing up something which which was actually very reasonable for questioning whether someone was cheating they may, they may have been told oh no you're round the twist for that i would suggest if possible people in these circumstances really should access professional help from a counselor okay so let's go to the second half of his email then okay uh, what's a non-hierarchical polygamist Well, I'm afraid I feel like I'm having a real go at Mike here, Uh, but I think his language, I think his lingo might be slightly off base here. Polygamy is a type of relationship that typically involves a person marrying more than one partner. It's not Uh legal in the UK. So what I think he might most likely mean is a non-hierarchical polyamory. Polyamory is a category of ethical non-monogamy or consensual non-monogamy. And it is the act of having intimate relationships with more than one person at the same time. So the non-hierarchical bit, that means not ranking them, like not saying you're my number one? Kind of. Hierarchical polyamory uh, is when there's one primary couple. So maybe a husband and wife, for example, or uh, people who live together, people who have children together. Uh, They might uh, combine finances, for example. They've got a major aspect of their shared life as a couple that means that the demands on their time together are likely to take precedence over those of other partners um, or they're tied together in some important way that makes the primary partner kind of a little bit more significant. In non-hierarchical polyamory, uh, each participant is utterly equal. They evaluate their own situation and connections. They make decisions on who they're going to spend time with based just on the needs and preferences of everybody. No one person 
has the right to take precedence there. Um, one thing that's, that often comes hand in hand with non-hierarchical polyamorous relationships and that Mike will need to ascertain whether this is the case for the person he's spending time with now uh, is another variant of polyamory called solo polyamory. This is when uh, somebody has intimate relationships with multiple partners but still lives a solo single lifestyle. They might not ever aspire to having a primary partner, an anchor partner. They might not want children. They might not want marriage. Understanding how his date does polyamory and what they want from the future is absolutely key to how Mike's going to navigate this. Um, for some people, being polyamorous is an identity, almost a bit like being gay. It's not so much a choice as just something that they feel is very much in their soul. It's their DNA. So to ask them to be monogamous is just not something that's ever going to occur. It's unfathomable for some poly people. So if Mike is hoping that maybe he can, as he puts it, share his toys for a little while, but then might settle into a more committed monogamous relationship with this person in the future, he needs to know whether that is a possibility from the outset. Um, to get a little bit more steer on this, I chatted to a guy called Roy Graff. He set up his own business called uh, Open Relating. Uh, and he said to me, the kind of questions that Mike should be asking here are about the agreements that his date has with other partners and the boundaries she has for herself. It's really encouraged to be curious in polyamorous relationships. You shouldn't stay stum and silent. You want to be finding things out. Um, the kind of questions that Mike might want to be asking are things like, realistically... How often am I going to see you? If Mike's someone who wants to see her every day of the week and she's seeing other people, it, that might be challenging. How many other partners are you seeing? If things do become physical with her, how is this person managing safer sex practices with others? Are they happy with partners meeting each other? Do they want them to have um, what's called like a kitchen table relationship where everyone could, in theory, sit down at a kitchen table, have a meal and get along? Or does she want a more of a don't ask, don't tell kind of scenario where nobody meets each other? Roy, like me, had concerns about the phrase share your toys. I don't think Mike means that to be as possessive and objectifying of his date as it could potentially come off. But it does suggest that he's maybe tied to the more mainstream idea of your partner being someone who is the one for you. And that is really the opposite energy that you want if you're going into polyamory. It's something that a lot of people struggle with when they're first experimenting with this kind of relationship model. And what Roy suggests is instead of feeling hard done by that other people are getting to play with your partner and spend time with them, that instead you feel flattered that they are choosing to spend some of their precious time with you um, and that the, the relationship they have with you will be unique and inimitable. What they're getting from you is not something that they'll get from other people. But I think if Mike is genuinely interested in polyamory, then doing things like uh, reading some intro to polyamory uh, books or tuning into some polyamorous podcasts might be a great way to start opening his mind and, and asking himself curious questions. Well, we did an episode of The Modern Man last year called Mr and Mrs and Mrs, which was about <laughs> uh, a polyamorous throuple. And in researching that, because I was coming to it completely 
having never met anyone in that situation before, I kind of typed polyamory into Apple Podcasts and found a lot of stuff. And I was thinking, actually, if this was an avenue I was interested in, I've you can learn quite a lot quite quickly, can't you, from just listening to the experiences of, of people who are involved in that lifestyle. Yes, you absolutely can. And I think it's really healthy to keep an open mind about what might work for you, especially against a background where we are all socialised very heavily to sort of expect that a monogamous relationship and maybe a marriage will absolutely be the thing for us. And, and challenging that assumption can be extremely rewarding. Having said that, though, there is sometimes this kind of sense that to be poly is to be evolved. That if you are if you are on a higher plane of loving thought, and if you are a grown up enough, free enough person, then you will be good at polyamory. Whereas some people try it and don't like it. Yes, basically. exactly, and that's yeah. fine. It doesn't make you a lesser person or a lesser lover if this is not the right relationship model for you. Go in with an open mind, but absolutely don't think it's a bad thing to close the door to that type of relationship if it isn't for you either. Well, thanks for your letter, Mike, and uh, thank you to the handy.com for sponsoring the Foxhole. I find it really reassuring that when people are pleasuring themselves with a handy, they know that there's state-of-the-art encryption there. They know that everything has been designed to keep their private experience with their privates just that. It's utterly private and it allows safe communication on the web and uh, safe coming all over the web production of your own sticky web it's fine with the handy if you want to try the ultimate automatic masturbator for men then go to thehandy.com and use the code foxhole that's f-o-x-h-o-l-e for free express shipping that means the future will be in your hands and you can slip your penis into it while you're there have a great time in new york alex Oh, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so we talked about this in the Christmas special, but you're actually about to jet off now. Um, So next month when we talk, you're going to be in NYC. What would you like to be talking about on the Fox or what kind of thing would you like people to ask you about? Well, obviously, I'd rather not just remain inside in my own little room in Brooklyn. I want to get out there on the streets and see what people are doing with their meats. So if you are a New York resident or you know of something intriguing, interesting and uh, Mm. preferably rather sexual going on there, then let me know. Yeah, so whatever your question of sex, do get in touch via our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and fill out the feedback form. But we're particularly interested in experiences that we can send Alex and... Out to investigate in New York City. If there is something that you are intrigued by that you'd simply like me to explore, send me on a quest, make me a mission, invite me to go and do something on your behalf. And if I consent <laughs> to it, <laughs> then that, that's what I shall do. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this episode of The Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new ambassador. It is Graham in Chapel Allerton, Leeds's hippest suburb. He says, Ollie, I've listened to The Modern Man from the very beginning. It is a highlight of my month. I spend two days per week as a peripatetic ukulele teacher, and podcasts keep me entertained while I drive between different schools spreading ukulele joy. Chapel Allerton, a North Leeds enclave recently described by an estate agent as the Islington of the North, requires a manbassador, and I'm happy to step in if the need is there. Well, there is no need anymore, Graham. It's you. Congratulations. Until next time, our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Matt Hill. 
and we'll see you with something new on March the 10th. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revelhorwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.